This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you get this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest that you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift today. Today's theme, Art Chang for Mayor. As the day draws near to vote for the next mayor of New York City, there's a lot to consider, both for the voting public and the candidates. I always think it is important to remember that the city is enormous, and in fact, being the mayor of New York is likely harder and more complicated than being the governor of a small state or a senator or a congressperson. The variety of voices and needs is just mind-boggling, and at this moment in time, the city needs someone who's visionary and can bring the city past where we are now and into a new and better version of itself. I had the chance to catch Art Chang on a recent morning, and we spoke about his life and a few of his ideas for the future of New York. He's one of the folks looking to take the reins and lead us starting next year. You'll find his name on the Democratic primary ballot on June 22nd. Whether you vote for him or not, make sure you get out there and vote. In-person early voting for the primary will begin on Saturday, June 12th, and run through June 20th, and the voting on Election Day will take place June 22nd, so get out there. Best of luck to Art and all the candidates. I'm Art Chang. I'm a candidate for mayor of New York City. Um, I grew up in in uh, Allwhite, Ohio, um, where um, faced some difficult times, uh, racism outside of my house and domestic violence inside. Um, I uh, moved to the East Coast to go to college. Um, I attended Yale, where I became the second man to graduate with a women's studies degree. And I also worked full time when I was there. And then um, I spent um, about 40 years working um, in the private sector, starting off by teaching music, um, and then in design and architecture, and then banking and finance, and then technology for the last, gosh, 20 years. And then in parallel, I've had a 30-year career in the public sector um, in lots of different roles. Um, so it's been it's been a really super fun career. Um, and I'm running for mayor because um, the city right now isn't working for anyone. Mm. And I see how it can work for everyone. And the solution is how the problems are interconnected. And so I believe that that the next mayor has to be someone who brings deep experience in this in the city and the state government, um, and also the mind of a the business mind with finance and technology and the creativity from the arts to be able to bring our communities together to to really solve the fun, these fundamental problems. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I really like about the, the messaging uh, as part of your campaign is the idea that everything is all interconnected, right? I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about New York City is that the people are interconnected and the businesses are interconnected and the neighborhoods are interconnected. And often, uh, as, a, as a longtime city resident, I have felt like the decision-making process is not often interconnected. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's the it's there. There are two two issues that that um, I think kind of bear mentioning. I mean, the first is that people who are traditional politicians, you know, they're like they lead their lives by getting attention. So they generate ideas, they have press conferences to announce them, and then when the things roll, you know, start up, and then they then they have another press conference. But you never hear about what actually happens to those things whether they succeed or they fail or they even get finished. Sure. And right. And so it, it, that's, that's like one really fundamental issue about this. And then the second thing is that the traditional way of solving complex problems is to break them apart. But that's very old school. Like the thing that I think technology has, has taught us more than anything is that when you look at the interconnections of all those things, that's how you can really solve them. So you can generate a single solution that can at the same time solve, address a number of, of problems at the same time. Right. Absolutely. So uh, you grew up uh, on a, your your family had a farm, is that correct? Yeah, my, my, my dad, um, who just was a, was a uh, kind of an entrepreneur, um, decided in, like when I was around middle school, to, t- to start a two-acre truck farm. Hmm. focusing on raising vegetables um, for the Asian, for the growing Asian population. You know, when we moved, when we moved to Ohio in the 1960s, the Asian population was 0.02%. Wow. We were the only Asian family. We had to drive to Cleveland 40 miles away to get, be able to buy Asian ingredients. Right. And um, so, you know, he saw the influx of Asians and said, Wow, here's an opportunity. So we had this two-acre truck farm. Man, I did everything on that farm. You know, um, I know how to how to how to, how to drive a rototiller. I know how to, you know, the work of of you know putting seeds in the ground, of weeding, of watering, and then harvesting, and then canning, and then you know distributing. We raised bean sprouts in our basement, and he <laughs> and he made tofu, and then Amazing. then he would drive around in his in his pinto with the stuff all in the back and then you know drop it off at these various places so you so clearly you come from a line of entrepreneurial spirits um i you know i i love hearing those kinds of stories because i think they represent some of the the great opportunities that exist um both in this country but also in new york uh you know i i for a long time um you know i mean i i grew up in kind of a a white new york jewish family um but i've always loved going to immigrant neighborhoods and seeing the different kinds of produce because there is an economy around people raising these foods that you know are specific in some cases to certain cuisines, 
right? Things like tofu or, I mean, you grew up Korean, so things like, uh, you know, kimchi and, and, and cabbage and daikon, uh, all of those kinds of things that are raised for that marketplace. And I think it's so interesting and I feel like it's only grown, right? I mean, we, we live in this sort of weird moment of um, Asian food in the food space has become, you know, both fetishized but also appreciated. And people really, really love it and are exploring the sort of ancient food ways of Asia. And then we're running into these, you know, very difficult issues of uh, hate and racism against Asian people as well. Can you speak a little bit about sort of where that crossroads exists in New York? Yes. I, was, I mean, I, I have to say that as an Asian man, 58-year-old Asian man who moved here 80, 35 years ago, um, this is really the first time I've, since I've moved to New York that I've felt concerned for my own safety because of hate. Um, there were other issues, right? I, I mean, I lived in Brooklyn during the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but for the heat issues, it's really concerning. It's like at a point now when, when, I, when I walk into the subway, you know, I look for other Asian people. As soon as I enter the subway car, um, first, just to make sure that, you know, like I'm not alone, but also because, you know, the, the, the most violent attacks have happened against women and against elderly Asians. And so I want to be near them where hopefully in my presence, you know, will will help deter Right. You know, any any kind of an attacker. Uh, but this is what we I grew up with. I mean, we, th- we think about this as a kind of a new thing. But this is what I grew up with for much of my life um, in Ohio. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a uh, it's 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 just shocking to see it come back. Yeah. How how do you think we how do we move on from it? Like, what are the ways that we can start to to heal from this? Well, the first thing is that, you know, we have to stop the most violent attacks, um, which are coming predominantly from mentally ill folks. Mm. Um, over half of the most violent attacks are, are from folks who really have troubled um, histories. And, um, you know, this is just a reflection of the, um, the mentally ill homeless problem, the homelessness problem that we have in our city. You know, so as mayor, you know, one of the first things I would do is I would turn to some of our very capable nonprofits, properly fund them, and then match them um, immediately with with um, with uh, um, you know housing that we can create, so we can create ten thousand or more beds to be able to bring these folks in off the streets and give them you know a safe place. And this is a similar problem, by the way, that's happening in the subways. But the underlying problem, which is you know, well, why why is it anti-Asian? You know, and, you know, I just look at the, the kind of the history of hate in this country, right? We know that, that black people have experienced it. We know that Jewish people have experienced it. And different immigrant groups have experienced this since the beginning of New York City. You know, I just recently yeah. watched the Gangs of New York. Yep. And, you know, we, we see, so this is kind of a, a thing about this, you know, kind of instant nativism, that people come here, they feel like all of a sudden they belong, and they feel like the new folks are the ones who are intruding and taking something away from them and being, being, being a threat. So I think given that history, it's so important for us to teach the immigrant histories of all the different communities who've immigrated to this country. And, um, and do that throughout the schools and bring you know families and communities into that conversation. Uh, but it also means 
that there's a huge opportunity to create alliances across ethnic groups who've had more experience with this, mm. frankly. You know, black people, like through the civil rights movement, um, self-advocacy for themselves, you know, paving the way for Asian immigration and women's equality and gender equality. And then I'd say, you know, you know, Jewish people, you know, having done the same thing, standing by, standing with the, the you know, the black community in that civil rights movement, and then facing other issues of, of, of your own that, you know, that we can also learn from. And so there's tremendous anti-hate experience um, that we can um, start to, you know, bridge across these different groups. Um, so I'm looking forward to that conversation. And that's really begun already. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, so you've decided to run for mayor at, I mean, what many would call an unprecedented time in New York's history. And I say that not just because of the pandemic, but even before coronavirus changed everything, New York was spiraling into what some people, myself included, would would call, you know, a, a somewhat unsustainable future where the street level retail was becoming full of national chains and empty storefronts. Um, that were kind of like driving out a lot of the fabric of neighborhoods. And I would love to hear from you, you know, kind of what do you think we can do in New York? Because, you know, New York is, as a friend of mine used to say, you know, you go to New York because it's where they grow the money. Uh, mm -hmm. And what can we do to kind of change the, the economic drivers that were starting to cause that change? Because I think one of the things about New York that makes it so special is the neighborhoods and is that fabric of community. But if you can't, open places that can serve as both, you know, retail venues and small businesses and community hubs, that becomes difficult to continue. Yeah, and you, you expressed that so well. Um, and I just would add in there, it's a, it's a whole creative class, mm. right? Yeah, you yep. know, what makes New York so special is, is, is the fabric of our communities, but also how the creativity of the communities. You know, and I think, you know, food and cooking is, is, is one of those ways in which people express their, their creativity and restaurants and delis are places where, you know, you can actually make a living doing that. Um, at least you have been so far. Yeah. Um, but to make, to, but to keep that creativity going in all these different respects, you know, it means that the city has to become more affordable. So when we talk about, you know, the loss of this, you know, the, the first question was, you can't address the problem unless you say, well, why did this occur? And it's very simple to me. It's a, it's a supply and demand problem, right? You know, we all know that when you don't have enough supply for a growing demand, and then prices go up. So what happened over the past 30 years? You know, we had a million people came into the city. We grew the city by a million people, but we didn't build enough housing to keep pace with that. Yeah. And then at the same time, the, the, the income divide, the income wealth gap between the wealthy and the, and, and the poor grew to unprecedented historical levels. And, and yet we didn't actually build low-income housing. And so we have these, we have a lot, we have communities who have, you know, who are who are living in grocery deserts, food deserts, childcare deserts, um, healthcare deserts. And so, you know, if we are going to make the, the city a place that is going to be affordable and can foster the kinds of you know expressions of creativity and the small businesses and the arts, we are going to have to to look start from the bottom. We have to build a lot of low-income housing, take the pricing pressure off of the middle segment of the housing market, 
um, be able to have people reduce the stress overall in the city, and then be able to really work with us with the small business and arts communities to grow them back as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think I think those are you know I think those are those are really important. I mean, you know, I think of when I moved to the city. Uh, I was just out of college, and I was able to afford an apartment. Uh, you know, with a couple of friends, and it wasn't a nice apartment, but we were able to find a place to live that we could support on our entry-level jobs, and it just feels like that segment of available housing has disappeared in large part, that somebody can't. I mean, I remember, you know, these things are, are generational, of course, and cyclical, and I think about when my mom moved to the city. My mom moved to the city in 1964, and, you know, that's around the same time I read uh, a, a personal history from Gerard Malanga, who's a poet, uh, who was Andy Warhol's, uh, one of his assistants. And, you know, he moved to New York City from Ohio, just like you did, and slept on a couch and was like babysat for people who were the beats and stuff. And then like got his own apartment. At the time, you could do that. You could be a poet and pick up a little bit of money here and there and move to New York because there was this interesting creative stuff happening. And I just, I feel like that's not possible for people who are getting out of college today, right? If, if you're graduating from college today, I don't know that you can afford to find a place where it's not going to cost you that much and you can kind of pursue your dreams. Yeah, well, I'll share with you one shocking statistic that the median household income in New York City is 69000 I mean, that's for a family, mm. right? And if you use the federal guidelines for, for what that family should be able to pay in rent, that's like $1,500 to $1,800 a month. Right, for a family, not just for a, family. a room. For a family. <laughs> like who, who can find an apartment for, the, for, like for that? For a family, yeah. right? That is That is... I mean, it's, it's habitable. It's just really an un unbelievable situation. So we have to really kind of, you know, think, think long and hard about how we do this, because if we don't do this, you know, we are going to have a, we're going to have a recovery. We're going to have a post pandemic recovery. And if we don't solve the affordability problem, and then in the next crisis, what we're seeing right now is going to come back with even more ferocity. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a statistic today that uh, during the pandemic, the work workers lost $3.7 trillion, and uh, the the sort of top end uh, of the, the wealthy in the economy gained $3.9 trillion. Uh, so, I mean, it's an enormous shift of money up, which is not new. Uh, you know, it's been happening for, for quite a long time. I want to shift our, our conversation a little bit uh, to food uh, and start talking about sort of uh, food, but I, you know, I, I want to hear about your policies, but I also want to hear about, uh, you know, every New Yorker has their places that they love to eat, and I would love to hear uh, one or two of yours uh, favorite restaurants or favorite neighborhoods to go and eat. Well, I live in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, and so it is just by definition one of my favorite places to eat. Sure. And you know, I'm I'm I have a blessing of being sandwiched between. Park Slope and Crown Heights. So, you know, do I choose between Franklin, you know, Franklin Avenue or, or Vanderbilt Avenue or Fifth Avenue? Now, those, those are the kinds of choices that we often make when we think about where we're going to eat. Yep. And are you the kind of person, do you decide to just go walk down the street and decide what you're feeling as you pass a restaurant or you decide I'm going to this specific restaurant? Well, you know, if you could get a seat, then I would say I would. We're we're the kind of people who prefer to walk down the street yep. and see what strikes our fancy. But you know, with COVID, 
especially, you know, restaurants with limited seating were just all filled up. And without having a reservation, you could not walk into a restaurant, yeah. um, practically speaking. And I would say that even before COVID, you couldn't do that, that the city became a place where that walkability, that kind of casual, relaxed thing that you used to do, you know, of just walking down the street and going into a great restaurant that you've never been to before, I guess that the discovery has really disappeared a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a very uh, that's a very astute observation. Uh, I definitely had that happen. I mean, I've I've lived in Williamsburg for a long time, and there's a couple of restaurants that people say are great that I never remember to make a reservation for. And so, you know, before the pandemic, I would walk by and walk in and say, "Do you have a table?" But I'm not going to wait two and a half hours for dinner when I'm feeling like I want dinner in that moment. So it's definitely yeah. Well, I'll, well, I'll tell you, like my my wife, I was like just kind of in. I'll just really tell you about my wife. My wife and I had had our first date back in 1994. In fact, it was January 8th, 1994. It was such an amazing first date, and we met at, at this little place called the Castro that was renowned for its martinis, and we both love martinis. And we had martinis, probably had one too many. Yeah. And then we, then we wandered down the street to try to go to the New Yorican Poets Cafe, but it was uh, too early, so it wasn't open yet. And so we walked another block and we stumbled into a place called Delia's, which was famous back then. It was a nightclub. Yep. And um, I knocked on the door and Delia opened the door and said, we're not open yet. And I said, well, we're really hungry. We're looking for dinner. So she looked at us and she invited us into her, her <laughs> restaurant slash club and she put a table for two in the middle of the dance floor. Ugh. And w while they were setting up the restaurant, she fed us dinner. That's incredible. And then we wandered down the street and we went to the Village Vanguard. And we saw we saw jazz. Mulgrew Miller was playing, one of my favorite trumpeters. And I just, like, that, I think that experience of New York, which is, I think is so fundamental to those of us who've been around long enough to experience that, was absolutely magical. And I'd love to bring that back. And part of part as part of why, you know, my part of my plan is like to, to create, you know, 10 new arts districts around the city so we can create this sense of kind of walkability, discovery, you know, accidental, you know, tourism with, you know, internal tourism within New York City. You know, that that was really so much part of the fabric of of, you know, so so, so key to the lives of of all of us who have been here for, for many decades. Yeah, I, I love that idea. I mean, the idea of, you know, uh, just wandering around and the sense of discovery is one of the wonderful things about the city. But as the world has gotten, uh, I don't know, compressed into social media and, and as things start to reopen from the coronavirus, I feel I, I worry that people are going to, you know, they're not going to want to they're going to want to make sure they have the experience that meets their expectations rather than being open to that new experience and just kind of, you know, seeing what's out there and, and letting letting fate decide. Absolutely. And it's, it's akin to like, you know, the joy of walking into a bookstore and browsing yep. and finding something or walking into a deli. Like I was in DePaula's, you know, last last week and like seeing like just not, not knowing what I was going to get, but just looking around and saying, well, what looks really good? This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. 
Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So let's continue with food a little bit. Um, one of the one of the things within your your plan for the city uh, is to you know continue a project that you know many many in organizations have been working on for years, which is that no New Yorker should ever go hungry. Um, let's talk a little bit about your plan. You know, you say you'll restructure the food distribution system. What you know, what do you see as the major uh, both? you know, kind of roles of the city government in food and food distribution, but also the, the sort of hurdles to overcome? Well, let's just say no New Yorker should ever go hungry or experience food insecurity. You're here. You know, with 40% of all food produced in this country is thrown away from the point of production through the end consumer. And that's a broken system. There is no reason why anyone in the city or anywhere, anyone in this country for that matter, should go hungry. So, but we have a, we have a fragmented system, right? Which has been, when, been left largely like 100%. So they're really the, the private sector to solve, right? The whole kind of supply chain from, from, the, from the farm, right? To the market is really up to the private sector. So we have this hodgepodge of things. And, you know, in this, in this environment where we've, where we've had this growing wealth inequality, you know, obviously, you know, if you are a for-profit food merchant of any kind, you are going to be more inclined to go to areas that can spend more money and we can make a more bigger margin than areas that don't. So we have, we have to be able to remedy that. So part of the role of government, I think, is to really do two different things with respect to food. The first is that we can take this very fragmented world and actually depict it with order. We can look at where the food suppliers are. We can look at how they go down to distributors, and we can look at how they fan out to um, retail, to, to soup kitchens and food pantries you know, around the city. Give us a unified picture of what's happening. And then we can start to fill in the blanks. Like where isn't there enough, enough distribution at the consumer level, right? How do we actually ensure that there is um, distribution that meets the specific needs of communities, because you know, as you pointed out earlier, you know, certain immigrant communities have their own individual preferences for what kind of food sure. they want to eat, right? So you need to be able to address those kinds of very specific things, but also address the issue of, you know, the um, you know the wealth gap and 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 how much food costs. So I envision a system where we actually can say, let's knit all these different things together into a single picture. Let's plug the holes. Let's figure out how we take waste from 
the, the from the from the supply chain. So things like you know in restaurant in, in in grocery stores where they throw out so much food that is at or near an expiration date, vegetables that don't look good anymore, even though they might be, you know, things like, you know, chicken bones from, you know, from chicken that has been cut, butchered and cut apart. Yep. All those things are potential raw ingredients. So as part of this, the thing I want to add is also a series of community-based kitchens that would be fully licensed and would be scattered around these areas of greatest need and where we could take some of this food, turn it into soup and stock and stews and other things, and maybe create a class of local entrepreneurs who then you know, use these community kitchens to, to produce healthy and low cost food for their communities. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that presents a really, you know, one of the, one of the amazing things I think to come out of the pandemic has been a lot of the mutual aid around food in New York City and the idea of these, you know, community fridges. Um, I have a, a number of colleagues who've been very involved in that. And I think that presents another really interesting opportunity for exactly what you're talking about, where you have this opportunity to take essentially waste and turn it into edible food and have an outlet for it to provide it to the community. And, you know, one of the things that I think is also really important for people to remember is that, um, you know, there are there are lots of ways for people to get food. There are soup kitchens and food pantries and, and those sorts of things. But the fact is that you don't, you know, you really don't have to meet any criteria other than being hungry to, to visit those places. And there's also nothing wrong with that um, because the food is there for people to eat. And so I, you know, one of the things I think is that there needs to be also be kind of a, a re-examination and a destigmatizing of uh, people, you know, kind of attending those places because it also is part of the community. And I sort of see great opportunity for people who maybe, you know, maybe you you can afford to go buy lunch, but maybe you'd be better off, or maybe you'd really like to save up some of that money to buy a gift for your kid. Go to the soup kitchen, right? They're not going to turn you away, and they probably have enough food, and you might meet some of your neighbors, and you know, there's a lot of good can come from that. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, there's some some places in in other parts of the country that are have experimented with taking some of these you know, food pantry um, settings and making them look like grocery stores. Yep. So you you walk in the front door, you get a a, a shopping cart. You're handed, you know, a, a ticket that says how much money you're enabled, what kinds of things you're allowed to, to, to receive. And then you walk around just like in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a supermarket, picking up the things that you want and then checking out at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> there are ways that we can do this and bring dignity to people's lives. One other thing I do want to mention is, is that that another missing element here where the city can be very helpful is thinking differently about how you know, we, we promote and encourage formation of new companies. Because not every company needs to be you know, organized in the traditional for-profit manner. Um, I've, been a, I've been a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is a member-owned cooperative in, 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 in Brooklyn. You know, and for, you know, for the past 25 years, you know, it sells all of its food for, you know, something like, like 15% above cost. And so this enables people who are, who are of all different incomes to mm, shop there. Right. And every member also has to work there. So you have this hands-on experience 
with that 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 setting from you know the point of district coming from the distributors into the into the retail and then understanding what that means all the different components of packaging the transportation the waste and then when when, when food does age and then we also um, you know put it into back into the supply chain where we then send it out to soup kitchens right. to be turned into into food uh, my local butcher here uh, prospect butcher company on Vanderbilt just opened up. They are a worker-owned cooperative. Yeah, I saw that. So, that's really, I mean, that's very, very cool and very progressive, and I think it's a great direction to go. Absolutely. So if we can think about how we take some of these models and test them in some of these lower-income places, you know, as an alternative to commercial grocers, um, I think we might be able to make make a real impact here. Um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, school food, um, which will there there will be a concurrent episode of my other podcast, Time for Lunch, that will be addressing this specifically with mayoral candidates that is going to come out uh, on the same day as this podcast that we are recording right now. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, about that and about the issues around school food, because I think that there are a lot of them, um, you know, as a parent of, uh, of students at uh, PS 132 in Brooklyn. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely seen the tension around, uh, you know, people feeling like kids only want to eat things like pizza, uh, and French fries. And the other side of the argument being like, well, if we offered them other things and they're hungry, they're going to not, you know, they won't only eat pizza and French fries. And so I want to hear your thoughts a little bit about, uh, about school food. Well, school food should be should taste good. Of course, <laughs> it should be. It should be. It should. Well, you know, we we say of course it should, but it doesn't often. Yeah. And um, it um also needs to be nutritious, and it has to also meet specific dietary needs. I mean, we have different, you know, you know, students from from different religious backgrounds, different practices, different dietary constraints. So it, it's a, it's a, it is a complex um, set of issues. Um, but I agree with um, Alice Waters um, that school food is some of the most important food that we serve because this food is feeding developing minds and bodies. It is setting the the path for you know how these students will grow up to become adults in terms of their consumption. Um, that when we do things like 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 give in to you know, every every student's preference for hot dogs and pizza. And then we're capitulating to this notion of of what's easy. Right. And my 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 experience as 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 a human being and raising two sons that my younger son actually is graduating from graduating from Brooklyn Tech this year, um, is that students will essentially eat what's in front of them if they're hungry. Yeah. And so you know, don't give them the false choice. Don't capitulate. Let's figure out how to make the food good, make it as much organic as possible, and then then and offer it to them. You know, we have the situation like at Brooklyn Tech, which you know is often criticized for being this elite specialized high school. You know, 60% of students qualify for free school lunch. Right. You know, and about 40% actually are are Title I students. So these are are students whose primary meals are often coming from the school. So the, so the city has a, even a greater obligation to ensure that the food is nutritious, high quality, tastes good, 
and that also it becomes a potential point of distribution for food for their families as well. Now, I know that during the pandemic, there has been a lot of funding um, coming through the USDA for school lunch nationally um, to make sure that there are meals available to kids, whether they're distance learning or in-person or both. Um, And, you know, what is your feeling on that program and its continuation? One of the things that I found very interesting in talking with parents at other schools um, over the years is that some schools have a setup where some students qualify for school lunch and some students don't. And sometimes they either have to pay for it if you want it. And then some schools say, based on their based on the demographics of the student population, everybody qualifies whether you really do or not. We're not going to look at the numbers. And so I, th- I think that there's a real... Um, there's a real value to that because of, again, going back to stigmas around income level and, and financial situation to just saying, listen, like maybe you can afford lunch and you can't, but everybody gets lunch if they want. Totally agree. 100%. Everybody should get lunch. And the, the important thing about providing services to the broad range of income levels of the students in our system is that I mean, just frankly, you mean you know, families who are who are wealthier tend to feel more entitled to express their opinions. Sure. And so if if we can actually create a situation where you know the, the the parents of students who have the means you know are are relentlessly advocating with the with you know the system to be able to improve the quality of food and to do more with what we have. And then, you know, then that's actually working in the service of the overall system, assuming, of course, that we do this with equity um, in mind across the entire system, which is also not not typically the case. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think are some opportunities for the city to help uh, restaurants recover uh, from the pandemic? Because as we come out of the pandemic and as restrictions are eased and, and you know, they can welcome guests back into their dining rooms, many of them still might be in a situation where they are under a, a P, you know, they have a PPP loan that's been keeping them afloat that they're not sure if it'll be forgiven. They might have an EIDL loan from the Small Business Administration that while at a low interest rate still represents debt. Um, and they may have other issues. They may have, you know, worked out a deal with their landlord to put off rent. Uh, and, you know, it's very hard in a slim margin business to make rent when you just have to pay your rent that month, much less to be looking towards debt and back rent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, small business, small rest, restaurants are small businesses. And like, <clears throat> you know, any small business you know the the experienced operators are extremely good at managing budgets, you know. But then pandemics hit and all kinds of things go topsy turvy, so they're good at managing their variable costs. But their fixed costs are really really tough. Things like the rent, the utilities, the property taxes um, are just super hard. And then when you add debt on top of it, as you pointed out, it creates a very very tough situation. So at this moment, you know, I think there are a couple of policies that I think are super, super important that for for um, small businesses and 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 residents, by the way, um, you know, who who need it. Um, we need to continue the rent moratorium. Mm. Um, we also need to do something for um, the eviction moratorium and we need to do something for landlords. Right. And and give, provide foreclosure moratorium. But we also I think fundamentally we have to work with. The landlords as well, because they're going to have a tough time 
providing relief for their tenants if they're themselves not getting relief because so many of the landlords are also family-owned businesses. Yep. Um, and then, you know, now what can the city do? You know, we have, um, you know, with with 100% return to, to 100% return, um, which is which has happened just now, um, restaurants will be able to to fill up their seats. Um, they'll be able to start plugging the holes. Um, and a lot for a lot of restaurants, you know, that street seating is is super vital to being able to to claw themselves out of the hole that's happened. Right. Um, so we need to continue street seating, you know, for you know a, for some for the foreseeable future. But we also need to think about how we make that more permanent. Yeah. How do we think about changing our streets to allow for a more appropriate usage of the streets for things like, you know, open dining. Because there are other problems that that the that this that the street seating has 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 uh, has created, but we need to do that. But I think fundamentally we have to shift the government from being a punitive force on restaurants to being a force that's aligned with the success of restaurants. And this means taking the eight different inspectors that are um, that oversee and regulate restaurants and boil it down to one or two. Yeah. We need to stop this sort of punitive ticketing, right, for any infraction, and more think about more working, working with and helping the uh, the owners to be able to meet meet the requirements to ensure that everyone's aligned toward you know the safety of their consumers because they're actually that's that's the longevity of their businesses. So everyone is ultimately aligned. So let's treat everybody as partners in this effort. And uh, ensure that we have kind of a, the most, the smoothest, most amenable, um, you know, practices possible for these for these important businesses. Yeah, I mean, the, w- what a wonderful time it would be if a if when a restaurant saw someone show up from the Department of Health, it wasn't this like scramble and hand wringing and like intense anxiety in the middle of a Friday night dinner service, but instead it was, oh yeah, hey, you know, inspector, you know, well, you know, come on, come in the back, let's take a look, we'll show you what we're cooking, we'll show you what we're working on, and, you know, and if the goal was to make sure that nobody was getting sick and that proper health, you know, health uh, processes were, were, and safety processes were being followed, rather than, as you point out, you know, it being about finding infractions. Yeah, I mean, my dream is that the city government will become so user friendly where the businesses will actually start calling the government for help, hmm. for advice. You know, like, like, hey, I'm, I'm, about, I'm, I'm going to change out my, 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 my stove and ventilation system. Right. Can you, can you help me figure out what I need to do so I can right. comply yeah. right in advance, right? Instead of sure. doing it, right, and go through the dance of submitting plans and having approvals and having inspected and just that whole anxiety around all that stuff. You know, it's, um, it's like we can, we can solve so many of the city's issues if the city starts thinking, if people can start thinking about the city government as partners in their success instead of as, um, as friction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Art, it's been a real pleasure. I have one final question for you. Um, I'd like to, uh, I want to know some of your favorite, couple of your favorite places in New York City, either to spend time or just to stand. Um, you know, one of, when people ask me that question, I always say that one of my favorite places in New York City is at the very center of the Williamsburg Bridge. 
span. Um, because if you stand at the very center of the of the bicycle or, or footpath over the Williamsburg Bridge, you can see the Statue of Liberty through the center of the span of the Manhattan Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge. And I've always been struck by that. It's also a, one of the few places in New York City you can stand and be surrounded by sky, essentially, and not buildings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's an amazing image. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, let you in on, on a little secret. Um, I'm a cross-country skier. And uh, which is like it's like super cheap to to get a couple of skis and and keep them in your in your apartment. Um, and my favorite thing to do is in a blizzard, in the middle middle of the night, I will strap on my skis, ski down my street into nice. Prospect Park, and I'll stand in the middle of Prospect Park, and just look around because it is like at that point you can't see the buildings you yeah. can't see any lights it is like being in the middle of the wilderness um and that is one of those magical moments that i, I just treasure in new york city that's awesome i love it i love it well uh thank you so much for your time today and uh you know i i look forward if anybody is is unaware uh the primary uh is on the 22nd of june and so I hope to see your name uh, move on from there, Art, and hopefully we'll see you as the mayor. Right. Well, thanks so much, Harry. It's been a delight being on your show. It's just a wonderful conversation. Yes, yeah, so you can you can find out more about me on uh, at chang.nyc. Um, I also have Zoom open office hours, so anyone can come to my website and book a time to to meet me via Zoom. Um, so you know, please please show up if you can. And I also want to remind people that this is ranked choice voting this year. So you have the ability to pick up the five candidates um, on your ballot in the order of preference. And uh, I hope that I'm one of them. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Remember, the Democratic primary for the race for the next mayor of New York is June 22nd. You can check in with Art at www.chang.nyc and follow him online at Art4, that's the number four, Mayor NYC. Art4 Mayor NYC. And you can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Heritage Radio Network.